There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 422. And today in the show, I'm joined by Giannis Patelis to discuss the scouting, stand prep, and habitat improvement projects the two of us took on while visiting his Wisconsin family hunting property. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today, I'm sitting here with Giannis Putellis, and I'm in Wisconsin in the, I don't know, this is this is the hall of history for you, isn't it? It is. It is. I've uh, spent a lot of time in this building here, over 30 years. Yeah. And I know how special having that kind of place can be. I've got my own little cabin with with decades of memories, and it's so special every time you go there. And I get a little misty-eyed about it and over-nostalgic maybe, but you can't help it sometimes, right? Do you still feel that way? Oh, I think I feel like that now more than ever. You know, when you realize the history that you have and um, that, uh, you know, you hang out here with like with who are like my elders, my mentors who are now, you know, at 70, get into their 70s and you sort of realize the you know, uh life does not go on forever, you know, and that their time here is limited, you know, and mm-hmm. you should get back for as many opening rifle seasons as you can. Yeah. Um Yeah, yeah stop. That's for sure. Uh, so, so we're going to talk about scouting. We're going to talk about stand preparation. We're going to talk about best bang for your buck, DIY habitat improvements. But before that, can we just dive a little bit more into that? Like, can you give us a little more of the history? When you were on in the fall, we talked a lot about your hunt here last November Mm -hmm. and how that went and some of the things you learned, but I don't think we really talked about like the people and how it all works and what that's looked like for you. Uh, what's that story a little bit? Because I've been constantly, as we've been out here, I'm like, so how does this work? Who has what and who does what and who all comes and who hunts when? Yeah. 
what's the whole story there? First, I'm going to have a sip of my uh, New Glarus Moonman Pale Ale. Do we need to talk about this Pale Ale before you answer the question? Because this has been on your mind. Only available in Wisconsin. Oh, for sure. It's, uh, I was just telling Mark that it's like ongoing and we need help deciphering and, and, and figuring out our little problem. We enjoy New Glarus beer, beer, but when I posted a picture last fall of me taking a whole bunch of beer across state lines, which is technically illegal, <laughs> uh, back to Montana, uh, uh, quite a few of the comments were like, dude, she's like anti-gun. This is the owner or the founder. O- yeah, Deborah Carey, the, o- the owner. I believe that's her name. Um, the owner of uh, New Glarus and her husband. And um, so without doing any fact checking, I kind of brought that up to Doug Dern. And Doug's like, I love her. She's great. Let's see if that's really true. And, you know, did some Googling and turns out she's not really anti-gun. She's actually my kind of politician because I would what I would call her a centrist. Mm, yeah. And I like that. I do. And I do like, well. like all, uh, you know, big businesses and uh just players in general she contributes to both parties and guess what that gets her mark hate from both sides well but yes <laughs> yes hate from both sides but you also get to have a seat at the table yeah. when either side is in power and you get to help along you know your community your business ventures you know and, and she does all this right so from what i read online she's got like a, a like she sounds like very cool, like my kind of person. And didn't you say that she shoots herself? Oh yeah. And there was some quote of her saying, Hey, if you think I'm anti gun, come over to my house and I have like a I forget if she said quarter mile, half mile, you know, shooting range, basically running up my uh up the drive, up the valley or whatever. Um then we checked that with the person that we with one of the people that we had gotten some of this information from, and he said, No, that's not true. It's actually known that she's like a HSUS or PETA supporter. And now I'm like, oh, that might be worse. <laughs> so if anybody out there can really give us the straight dope, or Deb, if you want to just email Mark or call Mark up and uh, clear it straight, we clear your name. We love uh, drinking Nuclearis uh, Brewing. I like the Moon Man. I'm not really a spotted cow guy just because I'm not a wheat beer guy that much. Like it's a fine beer and I can have like one... But uh, I'm much more of like a light pale ale, which uh, Moon Man really fits, yeah. that, fits that bill nicely. This is my first, my first new Glarus, and I've drank a bunch as I've been here, and this has been right up my alley. The No Coast Pale Ale, the Moon Man. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. I hope there's, I hope her name is clean and she's- And we can continue. <laughs> yeah, we can keep drinking Smuggling this. it back to Montana. Mm-hmm. Which I'm never going to do again. So no. don't try to catch me. <laughs> so what were you what were you going to say about your camp? I was wondering about the story here of, yeah. of your hunting camp. So I actually came here uh, first. This building is is owned by like a group of Latvians that owns some land kind of communally in the area, and um, people come up here to celebrate like a lot of Latvian like traditional. Um, uh, how do you say it in English? Uh, like basically, like the like the the cornerstones of the year, like the summer solstice, the winter solstice, and the two equinoxes, right? Amongst other holidays. Okay. So summer solstice, as I think you know, is called Yanni Day. <laughs> yeah. 
And for that one, we'd actually leave and go to another farm that was like 30 or 45 minutes away. And then this great big valley that led up to this hill. And at the top of the hill, you'd have like a, uh, a post with a burning barrel on top of it and a giant bonfire. There was, as there always is with, you know, traditional Latvian get-togethers, lots of singing, some beer drinking, dancing. You guys celebrate jumping. holidays so much better than traditional oh, like, yeah. stuff I grew up on. Well, you do a, you do a lot of... Um, uh, I don't want to call them like rituals, but uh, yeah, I guess sort of like exercises that are just um, metaphor is the wrong word, but sort of like like you swing on the swing at Easter time for the spring equinox. You swing on the swing, and there's a special song that you sing to have like a great summer ahead, right? And then you you know at the summer solstice, you got to grab a partner and jump over the fire together. Because that equals, you know, good luck and a good harvest or whatever, you know. And there's a lot of like stuff like that that's like old timey traditions, and whether or not you actually believe that it does something, it's a fun way to celebrate the the um the passing of the year. Yeah, I like that. you know, and the seasons. So that's how I first started coming up here, and then um, probably around that same time that my dad got in with this group of Latvians, he also got invited by same group of Latvians to come and join the hunting camp because he was actually only getting into hunting when I was about six. <laughs> um, so he started coming up here, came up here for whatever it was, four or five years without me. And then I started coming up before I was old enough to hunt, which I can't remember now if it was 12 or 14 in uh, Wisconsin when I was a kid, what the age was. Because I believe, no, I shot my first deer in Michigan. But not many, a couple of years later, I shot my first deer here. I do remember that, like a big difference was that like Michigan was shotgun, but here we hunted with rifles. Right. So it just seemed like that alone made it seem special, right? Like yeah. Loading an actual cartridge, you know, in, instead of just stuffing some shells uh-huh. into the old pump. You know? Different deal. Different deal. Like you just know you're going to shoot farther, although you're probably not. But, um, yeah, so that was, I don't know, that was probably, you know, I first probably came here to hunting camp, I'm guessing around 1990, 89, 90, my first year here. And, um, you know, yeah, I would sit in my, you know, in the ground blind with my dad. And then eventually, um, you know, we actually came on a, on a bow hunt one time and, uh, I don't know if I've ever told this story. We hunted. Remember that little bottom over here that's kind of between the knob and the, the main hill and that was just recently cut? And you're like, oh, that would be a good spot for a food plot and a Back stand. Where we talked about putting the cage. Yeah. Yeah. So I was I had a stand set up somewhere in there in the bottom. And I think my dad was set up just a little bit farther down, more on the field edge. And we set up stands like the day before. Didn't hunt that evening. Or maybe hunted somewhere else. But for whatever reason, the first time I went to the stand to hunt, it was in the morning. And we're going down a trail, and I knew, and basically where I had to bang off, and it wasn't far, like somewhere between 30 and 50 yards to my stand, my dad cut me loose. I had maybe like a couple of reflective markers or something to mark my way in there, and he kept going. And he wasn't that far from me. You know, he was like, well, I'll tell you later, in shouting distance. <laughs> but like, I got a flashlight, you know, and I, I peel off and this, this might've been my like very first, like alone in the woods 
going to a stand experience. Like and you without, said 12 or 14, something like that, right? Yeah, probably four. Yeah, probably 14 ish. Because I just can't imagine that I was like actually going to climb up in a tree with a bow at 12. But maybe. But yes, somewhere in there. Um, and anyways, I started looking for the stand and cannot find like where these markers are. And so I'm just like looking and looking and walking and walking and getting more and more turned around uh -huh. and probably just spinning circles in the same, I want to say 100 yards, but it's probably a 50-yard circle, you know, but crunching a lot of leaves, making a lot of noise, and eventually from the distance, it's like, hey, what the are you doing? You know, And I'm just like, I'm shocked, you know, because... You know, I'm already sort of freaking myself out because you're just walking in the dark, kind of uh -huh. lost now. You know, you're not, but you are. Yeah. Can't find where you're supposed to be. And then all of a sudden, there's some, like, voice yelling from a distance. And for a moment, I was like, hold on. It's like, was that my da dad or was that somebody else in the woods that's like, because for him to, to yell at me in English like that and not say something in Latvian was a little bit different, you know? Obviously, he had just heard enough of the crunching and walking around. Fed up. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, he just tells me, just sit down, let it get light, and then you'll find your stand, which is what I did. I remember like it got light and I literally, I didn't have to walk. I looked over. I'm like, oh, there's a ladder. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to my stand. Oh, that's great. And uh, by the time he got back to me, he had, uh, you know, later in the day, he had chilled out, but he obviously told me that, uh, that he thought that I pretty much ruined the morning hunt. Yeah. Um, Gosh. But uh, yeah, so that was a bow hunt. And then, but mostly we came up here for, you know, two to two and a half days of rifle hunting for the uh, Wisconsin rifle opener. Yeah. Which would always be around, you know, November 18th or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I probably came for close to 10 years in a row. And then once I moved out West, I definitely couldn't just, just couldn't afford every year would come, you know, whenever I could. And, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's been a good deal. What's been cool about it is that, you know, the hunting, whatever, I've definitely learned some things here, but like those, uh, you know, my dad's friends, those guys have been like, consistent you know mentors throughout my life mm -hmm. and even though like sure i knew them in uh, through in other parts of latvian society like at the latvian summer camp that i'm always talking about in michigan um you know i knew them from there and we'd meet up and chat or whatever but like you know it is in hunting camp it's sort of you can have some like deeper conversations you have some time to sit aside and talk one-on-one -on -one with somebody and yeah melt chill out you know whatever and you know now i've known those guys well as long as i've been hunting here so for 30 years and it's definitely like even this weekend hanging out with them, like I'm sure I I can't tell you right now, but I took something away from like what they're talking about in their seventy years of life experience, you know, that's valuable to me. Yeah, and like you said, the at least in my world, I'm guessing yours, we don't often have time or or the space or whatever to sit down and have those kinds of conversations with these with the people that we care about, but Yeah hunting camp is a unique situation where you actually have that space to do that mm -hmm. time and space so what's what so why are we here now like it seems like you've taken a 
and this is from the outside looking in, but like a renewed interest, wanting to go to the next step. Like I know you've hunted here over the years, but now yeah. it's like you're trying to relearn it, rethink it. Now what, do some work on it. I know. I feel like I'm having to. Um, what's the word when you like say a statement and then you want to take it back? Oh, uh, uh, politicians eat your words. I don't retract your statement. Retract. Yeah. Yes. Because I remember we did a podcast at Matt Cooks with Steve and I, and both of us oh. were kind of on the uh, like. Why would you ever spend a bunch of time whitetail deer hunting in the Midwest when you can live out west and do you know this long list of things that we're right. going to tell you about? Right, I forgot about that one. Right, that's a while back. It was a while back, but um, yeah, man, I like. I don't know. For me, it's like a, a lot of it is getting more into things that I I realize that I just don't know that much about you know and even though i've hunted whitetails like as a kid growing up and even as an adult you know when, when i lived in colorado we'd go out to nebraska and hunt whitetails definitely different than hunting them here but you know still and uh yeah you kind of just realize like what we have here and i think a lot of it has come to with like i'm now because doing my own show i have the freedom to sort of pick my hunts yeah where steve could Steve literally could care less about sitting in a tree for a whitetail again, you know, but for me, especially having this property that I can hunt and sort of not just hunt, but like spend time figuring it out, learning it better, all coupled with like the memories and the nostalgia. Like, it's just like, you know, we know the hunting's good here. I just have to like figure it out. Right. And I like having that like challenge ahead of me and, and not like, Going back down to Colorado to my old stomping grounds where I could like walk into the woods after three days and probably find a bull elk to shoot at. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like you kind of just like I know the I know the steps, I know what's coming, and here I don't have that at all. I'm still very much just like, well, like we were talking this morning, we wouldn't want to loop. It's like this place for a a eastern property, it whatever it is about it, it seems huge. Yeah. It's does. almost so big that you're like, I wish I, there was less that I could, and it would just be easier to focus on. You yeah, know? I get it now. And it's not that big, but I have roughly access to around 400 acres. Yep. Feels bigger than that. It does. And maybe it's just the topography. Yeah. There's a lot of up and down around here. Very yeah. little flat. Yeah, it's a cool area. So so what? But yeah, so anyways, I'm fired up, man, to uh, to do it, you know, the... Kind of a little bit too. The I, I mean, I gotta say, and, and maybe it's just like I'm not trying to plug anything, but like the saddle thing kind of gave me a little bit like, okay, I don't have to go there with 10 stands or 20 stands. Yeah, I can just roll in with this one system and kind of hunt it all. And as we talked about last fall, it's not quite that easy <laughs> when you realize, you know, yeah, there's still work to it, there's still work. Um, but uh. Yeah, you know, and 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 again, I have like I just have the time where I can say like, okay, these are the hunts I want to do every year. I want to bow hunt elk in September, and I want to bow hunt whitetails in November, and do each for a week, and I'll probably be a pretty happy guy. Yeah, and then mix in like rifle mule deer hunt in November. I know I'm kind of listing like everybody's dream <laughs> <Yeah>. fall. <laughs> All I want is these two simple things, and this, and this, and this. yeah. <laughs> and you know, every so often, draw a sheep tag. Mm-hmm. 
Which, uh, have you told the world about that? Mm-mm. No, we'll save that for another day. All right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, yeah, when I, when I look at my fall and I'm like, like, what are the top hunts like you want to go and do? Like the rut, what do you guys call it? Rutcation? Rutcation. Yeah. Like it's up there. Yeah. Plus it's a way for me to spend a little more time with my dad. Win, 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 win. Yeah. Get them both. Exactly. So what, uh, what was your hopes and dreams for this week, this weekend? You've been here turkey hunting and then also invited me down. Yeah. So I was here turkey hunting, invited my buddy Jim Miller, who's a uh, longtime friend and mentor of mine too from Colorado. One of the guys that got me into turkey hunting. Um, He's hunted tur- eastern turkey in Missouri and Florida, but had never really hu- hunted upper Midwest. And uh, after five days of hunting here, felt like he had one of his best, better, if not best, eastern turkey hunts. Nice. And we hunted here with tough hunting conditions for two and a half days and then headed down to Doug's for two and a half days. Might have had a little bit of better hunting conditions, but certainly had more birds to work. And uh, killed, some, killed some gobblers, which, which was sweet. Um, I do have to mention, like, I've never hunted turkeys in, at, at a time of year where it's so leafed out. Where there's times where literally you get up on a high point where normally you can just broadcast an owl hoot or, or, you know, work the box on a lot, some loud yelps and just hear them echo through the woods. And when you do it right now, it just feels like the woods around you just, just suck it up. And it just does not go anywhere, you know? We had a gobbler today, That's goblin just, like yeah. 100 yards, maybe 120. Like not much... The, couldn't and have been it was much farther. Just and this dude was in a field, and we're on the field edge. And when he's gobbling, for whatever reason, somehow those trees on the field edge are sucking the sound out of that gobble. Yeah, it was not loud at all. No, when you wouldn't. Yeah, had he been another hundred yards, I don't know if you would have heard him. No, I don't think so. A little bit of wind might have played into that, yeah. but like, it's uh, it's been frustrating. It definitely like makes you like kind of like you know rethink how you're how you're doing everything how you're approaching the turkey hunt yeah um, and um yeah it's uh you know again that's why i love to do some of these hunts because they're uh they're constantly challenging and humbling and eye opening yeah yeah even though we had killed birds this week man like we worked our tails off you know yeah um so yeah so i came here to shoot an episode which you'll be able to see probably next spring uh me and my buddy jimmy turkey hunting and uh, you should watch it, not for the turkey hunting, because but because you're going to get to uh, meet Jim Miller, who's like really like one of the coolest, interesting, nicest like people on the planet. But uh, since I was here, I was thinking, man, all shows should do some spring prep for this upcoming fall, as far as whitetails are concerned. That's when I called you, and I'm like, hey, man, let's. Uh, what you want to come out and kind of help us, like. So I got to give a little bit more backstory. My dad just bought 40 acres here. That's sort of part of, you know, this, this chunk of yep. land. Um, it adjoins um, some of the properties in this area. So kind of as a group, it just kind of gives everybody a little bit more land to hunt. But, you know, they've only had, they've had it less than a year. And we figured like, let's get you out here. You can like, 
take a look around and kind of give us some my goal is to have you give us some like some like short term like what can we do right now it's going to make a difference for like this upcoming fall and then also what can we do long, thinking about long term that you know is like more of a 5 to 10 year plan yeah. which we really haven't gotten into and we can do that now um and then if you had like a good one that was short term like actually try to execute it right now um and then other than that like walk some of the other areas properties and look at where i hunted last year and just kind of kind of dissect where i hunted last year how i set up if i was making the right decisions um and uh you know maybe help me pick out some new spots maybe you know prep some and a lot of it was you know coming back to the hunting out of the saddle is that hunting last fall i realized like when you want to switch trees you're looking at like a major investment unless you're like, Oh, I'm only going to go up 10 or 15 feet. Okay. Maybe you're only going to chop down a couple limbs, Yeah, but you better do it in a spot where there's not a lot of other trees around you. Because if you want a bunch of shooting lanes, you're going to spend time doing that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'd say on average, when I was like leaving a tree, by the time I got perfectly ready, set up in the next tree, and it didn't matter if I was moving a hundred yards or, whatever half a mile it was probably taking me three hours yeah you know and again it's like something that you learn and maybe on the next time you when you set up you like you really start analyzing the ridge more and you're like okay deer are gonna be moving here and here let's choose here because i can get in that tree i might only have to cut two trees or limbs for to be happy with my shooting lanes versus 50 yards farther you know I might as well bring in the, uh, the crew and, and, and multiple chainsaws. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That takes experience to kind of figure that level of nuance out. Yeah. yeah. So those are my, those are my goals here. Uh, so we probably could have achieved all of that if I didn't cut my visit in half. Right. <laughs> because of the airport debacle of Fromel. Yeah. You, I, you, I don't want to say you set a record, but. I don't think you're going to run into many people in your life that are going to tell you about a longer trip that they unexpected airline trip that they had than you just did. Yeah, I certainly hope I never have a longer one. <laughs> so I left. I mean, if you're going to like Mongolia, yeah. like you're expecting it. But when you're going to Idaho to Wisconsin, shouldn't be like not this. so much. No. So I had a 7 a.m. flight Saturday morning that was supposed to get me to Wisconsin. A little after one. So it was from Jackson, Wyoming to Denver to Wisconsin. Now, because of our like living situation right now, my family and I are out at our cabin. We only have one vehicle. So we had to figure out a way to get me to Jackson, which is an hour and a half away from where we live um, as a family. So the, the best way to do it would be that we would go as a family to Jackson that evening and then they would drop me off at a hotel. I'd stay the night in the hotel and then catch a taxi first thing the next morning to the airport. Yada, yada, yada. So my trip began Friday afternoon, went to Jackson, did all that. That night at like, I don't know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night, I got a notification saying that my flight was delayed the next morning. And my 7 a.m. flight got pushed to 1.30 in the afternoon. And they said it was because the flight crew got in late and 
because of federal regulations, they have to have a certain amount of time before they take the next flight. Yeah. So, okay. So my, I was going to get into Wisconsin at one thirty. Now I'm not leaving till one thirty, and I'm now going to get to Wisconsin at 10.30. And then from there, I have to pick up a rental car and drive an hour and a half or two hours from there. So I was thinking, oh, geez. Now I'm not going to get in till Saturday night at like midnight or 1 o'clock or something. What a pain in the butt. But that's what happens. I, I catch the flight at one thirty, and then we're in the air heading to Denver, and then the flight... Uh, the, the pilot comes on and says, hey, we've got some serious storms over Denver. We're not going to be able to land. We're going to have to circle up here and wait to see if things clear up. So we do that, and 50 minutes later, he gives us an update. So ah, it's still still pretty bad. We're going to have to keep circling. And I remember seeing the same little town along some river uh, that would have been north of Denver along the front range, and we circled over probably 20 times. I don't know how many times, but I remember kept looking. I'm like, I wonder what the river that is. Kept looking and like thinking about it and trying to like, look at a visual. I kept visualizing the map it was of Colorado. Probably is either. Um, I would say the. Uh, I think it's the Big Thompson that would go into Boulder. Okay. Or uh, the Pooter. Yeah. Does that go up towards uh, the Raywa Wilderness or something like that up that way? Is that the river that runs up that direction? Ooh, man, I don't know the Raywa well. <sighs> well, I don't know. I'm gonna have to look at a map and figure this out because I'm. I can just see it in my head still. So we kept going over and over and over and over. And I don't know how long we was circled. Was it nasty up. circling? Like bumpy? Uh, no, it wasn't horrible. It kept you above the we storm. Were, we were outside. Like we, were, we were in a patch of clear air north of the storm. Uh, so we could see fine. Like it wasn't weird or sketchy where we were. Um, circle, 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 circle. Finally says, hey guys, this storm over Denver is not letting up. Um, and we're running out of gas. So we have to go and land somewhere else. So we've been diverted to such and such a little airport in Nebraska. So we get going. We're heading to Nebraska. And I should say that at the beginning of this whole flight, I had several people that sat down behind me who were rip-roaring drunk. Um, they had been partying or whatever in Jackson. And I'd say these folks are like in their 50s. Um, and I, as I got to hear, like one of them is from, a couple was in, from Texas and a couple is from Las Vegas. So you know, take every stereotype you want about Texas and Las Vegas with people with money and then put a bunch of liquor in them. And those were like the two personalities we had. And so this group behind me was rip roaring drunk. And then this happens. And then they start complaining and bitching about it and getting upset. And then we land in Nebraska. And this is like a little private airstrip. This isn't a big airport. So there's no getting off the plane. There was no anything. It was like, hey, we're just, you're going to sit here and we have to wait till they refuel. Well, this little airport is not accustomed to having great big jetliners and stuff there. And it's not just us. There was like seven other major jets that had to come in because everybody was getting diverted. I ended up finding that 37 major jets had to be diverted around and outside of Denver because of this. So we sit there and wait and wait and wait. And then he keeps giving us updates and says, hey, they don't have enough gas for the plane. So they have to go out and get find gas. And so they got gas and they come back. And now like all these other people ahead of us are getting gas. And long story short on this, uh, to try to take what ended up being a very long story, we ended up having to sit on the tarmac in Nebraska. I think it was six hours, six or seven hours we sat there. And eventually, like, we got gas in there, and then they did it wrong. They they didn't balance our tanks. So one side had too much gas and the other side, so they had to remove it. And blah, blah. How are your drunk friends doing at this point? Well, so they went from drunk and like happy partying mm -hmm. to drunk and angry to like hungover and quiet. And then the one gal 
got really, really, really mad, and she was blaming everyone for what's happening. And it was everybody's fault, right? Um, so it was the pilot's fault. It was the airline's fault. Even though this is like a weather, it was like an act of God or whatever, you know, they, they right. call God it. God was thing. actually punishing her, and the rest of you <laughs> were, were taking the brunt of having that. to go through hell with her. Uh-huh. So she was lambasting everyone, and then she was on the phone with customer service trying to get things rescheduled. And it went so far as to the point where she was threatening to sue the customer service agent and was talking about her fancy schmancy lawyer and how they have a dog at home and that they're not going to get home in time to take care of the dog because of this. And this is how this is their fault and, and like screaming. So like everyone in the back, you know, I'm in the very back of the plane. Um, everyone in the back third of the plane can hear this and is seeing it and they're cussing. And you, don't, you big time wired to hunt, don't ride first class. No, huh? no, no. I'm like three rows from the very back bathroom. <laughs> Though she was very irritated that she wasn't in first class. She kept bringing that up. We should have been in first class. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm trying to remember if she said something like maybe they had bought first class at some part of this trip and they got pushed out of it or something. Cause I remember something along those lines being said, but I mean, she was throwing a fit just foul and then politics were brought up and then like they're hooting and hollering about you know such and such political person they don't like and how this is so-and-so's fault and how this is you know everything you could imagine um we finally get on get in the air we get sent in we land and because of this long delay i missed my two connections so then to get a new flight scheduled. I had to sit in line, waiting in a physical line while also on a phone line, trying to get to a person to see which one I would get first. And I had to wait for almost two hours. So this is now, I don't know, like 11 o'clock at night or something at the airport, trying to figure out some way to get here. And ended up getting rescheduled to fly to Chicago. And then I would change my car rental, rent a car in Chicago, and then drive here. So I had to spend the night in Denver. Next morning, this next flight, the next flight they could get me on, I couldn't even get anything here to Wisconsin unless I wanted to wait till Monday. So I got the Chicago flight. Didn't get me until, I don't know, 1030 or something Sunday night. Mm-hmm. I land in Chicago at 1030 and Sunday night. I go to pick up my luggage. I wait for 45 minutes for the luggage to get there and nothing. And so all my luggage got sent to the Wisconsin airport. So I have to spend another night in a hotel in Chicago because the Madison hotel airport isn't open till the next morning so i spent another hotel night get up the next morning go to the wisconsin airport get my stuff finally get here like two and a half days later than i was supposed to all that's to say you started like, friday afternoon evening mm-hmm. and you got here at probably about eight thirty or 9 a.m monday monday morning you could have probably driven here and back to idaho in that time isn't that ridiculous there's a whole lot of extra money paid for change tickets and rental cars and hotels and all that for, yeah, just chaos. It's a long period of time. It's frustrating. So but we made it. So we're here. Instead of having all those days, we ended up having like uh, most of Monday, all of Tuesday, which is today. Yep. And now and we have about half a day tomorrow. A little bit tomorrow. And in that time, still... We got some shit done. How do you feel about what we got done? Given like all those hopes and dreams you had that you just listed. Dude, I I mean, we pretty much, you know, checked the boxes. Considering the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, we'll, we'll get into it. There's a couple things that are, you know, not quite polished, but like, um, I mean, I don't know if you want to just jump into like right now into my dad's kind of 40 and, yeah. and, and discuss it, but, uh, 
So we did the tour. It was really cool. We went up and, uh, and, and there's basically one ridge that comes to a point. And then on, on three sides of the ridge, drops down onto the property. And then it's pretty much flat. And the ridge and the surrounding areas are what I'd just call a Midwestern hardwood oak forest, yeah. I guess. And then that transitions into a planted white pine forest for probably 20 acres or so. And uh, we went up on the ridge, and uh, you're like, man, these little points on this ridge is probably where some bucks bed. And sure enough, what was really cool to see is like we went up on one little outcropping you know finger that you know drops down off the main ridge should be a buck bed there were some beds there but it didn't look like was there a bed there i don't remember if there was a bed there or not but i was like there should be one here yeah but but wide open no like uh what do you call it horizontal no horizontal structure cover at all just yeah wide i'm a wide open little knob there's a there's a old uh little bench up there where yeah. people used to have sat and hunted we go to the next knob over which has literally like mother nature's hinge cutting job right at the end of it yeah i mean it's not at like five or six feet up it's more like 10 feet up but a giant tree is snapped 10 feet up and laid over on its side and there's a couple other trees and guess what like four major buck beds kind of covering the compass rows you know around yeah. around this point you know and it, like just underneath them, there's almost like this like sandstony little bluff micro cliff yep. kind of a feature. And uh, it was great just to, for like you, like you were saying to like, you can, that's something that you can look at on Onyx, put the pin there and be like, you should go look there, see if there's things bedding there. And then you go out there and then you're like, yep, sure enough. There look it is. That. Yeah. It's probably where your buck that lives on this property or, you know, Couple bucks bed right yep. in here. Yeah, it's amazing how much once you learn a few general patterns of how these deer like to typically use certain terrain features, it's not always gonna be right, but it is a great starting point. Yeah. You know, I mean that helped a ton. And the one thing we haven't done, and maybe we should just do it in the morning, but I'd love to go and hinge cut that other knob. Yeah. And then revisit in a year and see if there's three buck beds on that other knob it absolutely should be being used like that it's it's so well positioned i mean we talk about this a lot these bucks when they have these knobs when they have elevation they love to bed on the ends of points or ends of the knobs that come off ridges where they can see an area they can protect themselves visually from the front and by scent behind if they can ever have that it's really hard to beat that from a security standpoint for a deer and and yeah i mean that's exactly what we found it was it was it was like textbook except zero cover zero cover and though that knob is more west facing where the other one is more like more southeast so when they're on it they're getting that wind over their back that's true but on that other knob they're with the winds going to predominantly be in their face Yeah, I do, but I do think like if you were to improve that with the cover there, he'd still they still could get on that sure east side and use it because it, otherwise it was set up so nice. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a way where you've got the starting point of okay, here's a feature and so much of what we talked about and what we will talk about 
on your property, both the 40 and the larger camp is when it comes to habitat, oftentimes look at what the deer want to do naturally and then define it better, improve it better, sweeten the pot. Like it's much easier to help deer do something they already want to do versus try to make them go way out of their way to do something they don't naturally want to. So if you can find ways to maybe encourage them to do it just a little bit more this way or to do a versus B just a little bit more, but making sure the A's within the set of things they do like, you know, you don't need to make this thing more hard than it has to be. So finding the spots they naturally want to bed and then sweeten it, finding the natural line they want to travel from bedding to feeding, and then finding a way to slow them down in a specific spot between the two where you can get a shot. That's a great way to do it. Um, which we'll talk about with the food plot. Now those buck beds, mm-hmm. we talked about how to hunt them. Obviously, not hunt them, but how to hunt bucks coming out of them. Mm-hmm. But like during the rut, when I'm usually bow hunting here, or will be again this year, they're not necessarily using those beds, right? Because they could be bedding with the doe. They could just be like, well, I've been cruising for 10, 12 hours. I'm just going to bed on this point, which could be a mile from like his normal spot. So, like, how important are those buck beds still to me being like, a guy that comes here and hunts a rut. Yeah. So I would not plan your hunting strategy around them during the rut. Right. Because of the things you just said. You're right. They may use those beds sometimes during the rut still. They may not. Like you just said, they might be elsewhere. They might be just hanging out with a doe. They might be cruising for 70% of the day. Um, so I would not let that be like something that drives where you hunt during the rut. During the rut, you should be focused on where the does and where are concentrations of travel, where those cruising bucks might be pinched through, yeah. like our hub type situation. Um, but having good buck bedding areas is good for you throughout the whole year, the whole rest of the year. It's good for any other bow hunting or hunting outside of that window of the rut. Um, right. It's still going to give that buck like, hey, I've got good bedding area here. Maybe I can call this my part of my home range. Exactly. Right? Yeah, If you if you've got the best Taj Mahal setup around that bucks. The if there's multiple Taj Mahals around more bucks are going to want to, like you said, have this be a part of their home range. And the more bucks that want this to be part of their circuit and their home range, the more likely they're going to be the ones that you see during the rut, checking your does. If, if they're in the zone, if they're in the area because of some of the improvements you make, while they may not use them exactly how you envisioned, they will be at the party. And if they're at the party during the rut, you've got a chance. So I, you know, I would certainly think it's worth doing, but it wasn't the first thing I recommended we do in this situation, like what we actually went with, because there's something different that would give you a better bang for your buck that would apply during the rut and at all times. Um, While improving that bedding, it'll be good, but it's not going to make a noticeable rut difference for you. Right. What we did decide to do is improve upon in a i guess you could call it like a fallow food plot yeah the prior owner or actually a hunter that had access um to the owner's property that hunted it um with a bow he probably put in a food plot i don't know i'm guessing 10 12 years ago kept it up for five or so years and now it's been it's basically when we rolled in and saw it it was a what do you think it was like uh half acre i was gonna say a third of an acre third of an acre 
and waist to chest high raspberry bushes. Yeah. And really walking through there, it's like because we were looking for stumps to mark for the um, the neighbor in his tractor. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. But not a lot of deer sign on the edges of that meadow in those brambles, raspberries, like not a lot of sign, right? Yeah, not a ton. There's some droppings yeah. here and there, but nothing remarkable. Yeah. So you figured, like, short-term goal, like, improve this property. Like, m- you know, mit- let's make a spot. We have basically, like, in the middle of the woods. Um, we've probably got three to 400 yards away. We've got some ag. Yep. And um, we figured, hey, great. This food plot's, like, tucked away be a great spot for them to come to on their way to the ag fields or maybe on the way back from the ag fields in the morning. It's already here. Like, let's see if we can't get it pl- planted in the time we have. A day and a half, basically. Yeah. And, you know, a big thing, like a big part of that decision when I was thinking this through, and, and we've talked about this over the last couple of days, is when you're looking at making some kind of improvement on a property, I always want to start by considering what's the missing link. Like, what's mm. that missing ingredient on my property or in the neighborhood even? You can sometimes zoom out farther. And so if you look and say, okay, what do deer need? They need food. They need cover. They need security. All right? They need to be like felt like they're not being messed around with humans all the time. So when you zoom out and look at this zone, it is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of acres of solid, mostly solid timber. Mm-hmm. And then there's a couple crop fields on the outside of this massive zone of timber but not a lot you have one of them on your yeah. neighbor it's not what you quite would call like up north woods because i think up north woods definitely are a little bit more heavier mm-hmm. um coniferous yep right uh but i mean just he, from here compared to the Duran farm it's like way more big woodsy feeling where you can walk through oak forests over oak ridges through oak bowls for hours and not see a field yeah and so that's that's what i looked at is like hey if we're going to make a change let's make a change that fills that missing link and provides something unique here deer in this area do not need more cover there's lots and lots of good cover um what they don't have a lot of is like a super desirable small food source i'm gonna interrupt just a second tomorrow when we're out walking i want you to like as often as you see, I want you to point and be like, doe bedding. Good idea. Yeah, we can do that. Um, so, so yes, it seemed to me that all the things you said are true. There was already an opening. It was a small opening that had been kind of reclaimed by nature, but we could, we could open it up again and create this little opening, which would be unique in the area. And then we could plant a highly desirable food source, which would be very unique in the area. Other than a cornfield out there ways, there's nothing else like this. So a little tiny food plot could make a big difference for a certain number of deer in a spot like this compared to maybe by Doug's or somewhere in Iowa where there's tons and tons of that kind of stuff. It's it's just... If you did this food plot in one of Doug's woods, I don't know. I can't think of a reason other than it's maybe more secure yeah. than going out to the big big cornfield. And even in those spots, it can help some. It, it It gets you that secure zone. It can be a transition point. But here... It's so different and unique. It's going to have a larger, a larger impact. Yeah. 
So, so yeah, I thought, shoot, within, you know, we've got 24 to 36 hours to do something. We might actually be able to reclaim this thing and make it a food plot and set just up a, set up a perfect little setup for you or your dad. Um, and it's kind of neat to do something in like entirety. So rather than like do a little project here, a little project there, a little project there, it was, Hey, let's make, let's fully set this thing up from top to bottom and have this dialed for hunting season. And that's, that's kind of what we try to do. Yeah. Your first thought was that we would just, um, seed it and then knock down the raspberries and use those as mulch basically and see what would happen mm-hmm. and come in and spray to kill the raspberries and see if we get the clover to come up. Yep. That's like a but budget option. We're lucky where we have a great neighbor, uh, that does some farming, has some farm equipment. I talked to him ahead of time and said, Hey, you know, if we need you, can we maybe hire you and your tractor? He's like, sure. So the biggest question was he, was he going to be able to get down the little, like, you know, two track that we have for access, get his tractor in there. He was able to. And so instead of doing what I just described, we were able to go full on tiller and basically till the whole thing up. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, (laughs) so he rolled in, um, we got a couple other things done this morning that we'll talk about in a second, but he rolled in, I don't know, just afternoon with his tractor and just like dropped his tiller. And in like the next five minutes, you've got, you know, six by whatever, 50, 60 yards, just like the prettiest dirt you've ever seen. You're like, okay, like we're in business. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, whole bunch of stumps left in that food plot. Cause I think the guy that did it before us did not have heavy equipment, didn't yeah. take the stumps out. And so, we were trying to just sort of till through them and it was chopping up some of the smaller stuff, but we pushed it and sheared a couple pins, bent a, um, one of the tines on the tiller tiller. and, uh, so we went from about a third of an acre to a sixth, (laughs) which when you go in there and you look at it, you're like, dude, really nice food plot, you know, like probably 50 to 60 yards long and 20 yards wide. Well, I'd say wider than 20. Wider maybe 30. 30. So still, si- maybe 20. sizable chunk. He's going to come and finish the rest while we're not here. My dad's going to come back and, and seed the rest. But we figured we would just keep moving on. So you recommended clover. which I think you could, should speak to that. Like why, why the clover? Yeah, well, I was looking for something that we could plant, you know, something that would take well in the spring, something that's relatively easy to get going, and then also that doesn't require constant work. So a lot of other food plots that folks use and that I've used and I still use are annuals where you plant in the fall or like late summer, and then it bursts out of the ground and you get great growth in the fall, but then it's dead in the spring. You have to plant again the next year and you have to do that every single year question yeah is that why because we kind of had it run around to a bunch of stores in town looking for seed nobody had just straight up clover but we did pass over some and i hope this isn't like the actual name of a brand but it was like <laughs> buck crack and not, not butt far off. crack but buck <laughs> crack and you know i i forget what whatever else there was but it was like other blends of seeds but how come you didn't want to go with those because those are annuals those are I see. 
fall fall so we'd be at the work next spring again yeah and and we you don't even want to plant that stuff now because that stuff would if you plant that stuff now it would mature before hunting season and be less desirable once you get to the fall got it so clover you could plant now and you can establish it in the spring when it's wet still and it's relatively drought hard so even if we had a tough stretch it'll do better than some things and the thing is that it will stay attractive right on through so that clover is going to be attractive to deer, you know, within a couple of weeks. And oh, it's really? Gonna, yeah. A couple of weeks they'll be in there eating it. Yep. And it's going to stay attractive right on through the fall, right into the winter. They might still be pawing at it in December or January in some cases. I mean, it's, it's the closest thing to a year-round food plot you can find just about any part of the country. Clover is just, it's magical in that way. There's certainly going to be some things that will be more desirable at other points of the year. So... You know, one window, if somebody had a bunch of brassicas, that might become more attractive in December than what you'll have. And when the corn gets harvested in November, that's going to become more desirable. But clover is going to maintain this steady, like, it's a pretty damn good thing right on through. It's really hard to find that with anything else. And you have no vested interest in clover to be selling the clover. <laughs> no, right? I do not. It's, this isn't like wired to hunt clover. No wired to hunt clover. Oh, that's a good idea. Maybe that's the next business venture we should explore. <laughs> right. If um, you just want clover, yep, I got it. Come talk to Mark. Uh, but you actually uh, bought two different kinds of clover. Yeah, just two different varieties. Um, both perennial clovers. Um, just, I, I think it's always a good idea to have a little diversity in what you've got. You know, sometimes one will be a little bit more impacted by drought or something. One will be a little hardier. One might be a little more attractive early and one will be a little bit more attractive late. So I oftentimes, if you can, any kind of diversity, any kind of mixture will just get you a little bit. It's just like you diversify an investment portfolio. Exact same idea with a food plot. Um, So like what we did in the back 40, we super diversified that. And those were fall annuals that you planted, but we had some perennials mixed in. So that had uh, a lot of different things, which provide a whole bunch of different benefits. In this case, uh, we went the minimum diversity, diversity, but a little. Basically, a couple perennials. We'll get some clover out there, get us started, get this thing rolling. And then you know, you're know you going to be able to do a lot of different things with this in the future if you ever wanted to, but it's going to be relatively low maintenance. You don't need to plant again next spring. You don't need to plant again next fall. All you need to do is if you see a bunch of weeds coming up, Maybe spray it, maybe mow it. Probably at least one mowing a year, and then maybe a spray. And that's something. How tall will the clover get on its own? Oh, I've never tested exactly how high it would get, but you usually want to mow it if it gets, you know, upwards of I don't know, eighteen inches or something like that. It gets it gets stocky and not as um, oh. not as lush and attractive when it gets too mature. Mo- most everything reaches some point where it matures and does not become as desirable. So that's part of the reason why the mowing is a good thing. Mowing will knock back competing weeds and then will also kind of knock that clover back to that younger early stage growth a little bit and become super attractive then when it starts so to like regrow. in this, you know, whatever, upper Midwest climate and, and, and you know, seasons. Yeah. Is there like a time if you had to guess you'd be like man it'd be pretty optimum if you mowed it in august because then in october you'd be you know still rocking and or you know yes i can't speak to other parts of the country that i don't have experience with but in michigan yeah late august i like to cut late august because you're going to get a bunch of rain you're going to get the fall rains coming soon and at the same time that's going to line up well if i cut that stuff in late august 
you're going to get all that lush, nice new growth leading right into opening day. When you say new growth, it's not like new growth out of the existing shoots. Like you've already got fresh seed in the ground and it's full on fresh growth. No, it's it's fresh growth from the existing plants. Okay. So like new growth from that, you know, that plant. Now it's got to regrow. Yeah. Okay. And that's tender and, uh, and just jam packed with a super concentrated dose of nutrients, I think. Um, so yeah, you're going to have the beginnings of a perennial food plot. There might be a little maintenance, like I mentioned, but it's going to be, you know, not too bad compared to what it could be. And this is going to be something that's sustainable too. You know, this could stick around for five, six years. I've got a perennial clover plot that I've, you know, with a little bit of fixer upper time, it's been around for eight years now, something like that. And I've not had to disc it till it do anything. I haven't had to restart it. It just keeps going and I kind of tweak it every once in a while and I'll broadcast a little extra to fill in any patches and I'll mow it once a year and I might spray it once a year, every couple of years. But that's now the beginnings of what you have and it's tucked way back in the cover. It's kind of in between two different bedding zones, between those two different bedding zones and then where that big food source is. Yeah, so, and it's the transition between the oak and the pine. Yeah, the forest. two habitat types there. So you've got this little, like I keep, I remember referencing, it's kind of like a little ice cream truck is what you have there, where it's this special thing that they, they're not finding anywhere else in like this concentrated little dose. Plus it's an ice cream truck that like shows up to your bedroom or shows up in your living room, like right in your safe space. These deer don't need to go out to the street to get their ice cream. The ice cream's coming right into where they feel very comfortable, way back in that cover. Yeah, so I think we did the old line distance on onyx which if you're not using that tool man yeah. get out from underneath that rock and go hit the little tools button so useful far left it says line distance hit that then you basically tap your screen wherever you're trying to you're, you're doing this just to measure a distance so usually it's usually from where i'm standing so i'll tap like right yeah. next to the little blue circle and then i go over to i had already marked where those buck beds were tap that and all of a sudden there's a line and it tells you how long the line is Yep. and uh sweet sweet function it's probably aside from just looking at the map and like following a direction on the map that's probably the next most used feature that i use like all the time yeah um anyways those buck beds are i think were they like 250 yards i don't remember that one something like that 250, 275 from that food plot, which... And you said it was like 400 yards to the ag fields or something like that? Yeah. Wasn't it? Along those lines? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 close enough to those bedrooms up there that this will definitely be within their circuit. And this is a much nicer way for a buck to start his evening feeding routine if this is like an October, mid-October, or late September, since you guys have a September opener. I could very easily see bucks dropping off those points slowly transitioning, hitting this little secluded food plot, you know, over the course of that last hour of daylight. And then from there, slowly moving to the Southeast towards the big fields. And they never need to show their faces in those big fields till after dark. And all the neighbors or whoever that would be hunting that kind of stuff, wherever, never know these bucks lived Mm -hmm. except for you guys would see them because you're 400 yards further back into where they feel safe. And uh, you've now all of a sudden like, these deer were making a similar travel route. Like they were going from that general zone to that general zone, but they were, they had no particular reason to go to a little third acre portion of that on a, any kind of consistent basis. So to try to hunt those deer and to know 
like, oh yeah, they're going to come through here and to say, oh, this buck does this or that. It's a total crapshoot. Now we have this little wonderful feature that's going to be like a magnet that will pull things that want to generally go from A to B, like that general path, but maybe spread over a 500 yard width. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden now they're all going to kind of still go from A to B, but this one's going to swing a little more to the West and that deer will swing a little more to the East. And they're all going to want to pass by the ice cream stand on the way to get there. Cause this is a great, a great treat and safe treat. Yeah. Right on their way. To and dinner. when you say all, like it's important to mention that there's a bunch of country here and it's low deer density. Yeah. Like 20 years ago, I think there used to be more deer, but, um, when Mark says all, I think that like, if you sat there on the evening hunt and had, you know, anything more than two deer, you'd be like, whoa, it's all a bunch, bunch of deer tonight, you Good know, night. you know, roll through here, you yeah. know, hopefully maybe one of them would be a, would be a buck. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like, I don't want to say I was ever really against like, I am against still against like farming deer. Like if you, especially if you throw in the fence aspect of it yeah. and then like there comes a certain point where I don't know. Personally, I've never been there, so I really shouldn't to speak to it. But it just looking from the outside in, there could get to a point where the woods just would cease to feel like woods, yeah, because they're so so fabricated. And like right now, like with what we've done, there's a lot of fabrication that we did in the last you know 24 hours. Yeah, but I think that once you know the it turns into a clover meadow and sort of like the other work that we did just kind of blends in it's it's not going to be this like great departure of what yeah. naturally is there yeah you know yeah it's it's a nice way to you know enjoy the benefits of of some of that stuff without going overboard with it and i think it's going to be the just a great kind of thing for your dad enjoying a bow hunt out there totally and, and having a yeah you know this country's got a lot of big ridges that are you know roughly from Roughly the tops of the ridges are 300 feet higher than, than like sort of the bottom lands around here. Yeah. And uh, he's 70 this year. And, you know, humping the ridges, he still does it. But, like, would he do it six or seven days in a row? No. This place, though, is like a flat 300-yard walk from where we've decided the access point's going to be, which we should probably touch on. Yeah. Uh, to get into this stand that's on the food plot, which um, we should talk about that stand, man. I mean, it just like turned out, it's almost perfect. <laughs> we hit like, it's like nine almost. out of 10. <laughs> that, but, ne- that negative one point is a big one for you though right now, isn't it? Well, yeah, but I'm the only one that climbed in there after I got to sit there <laughs> for a day. With, um, with the negative that we're talking about, it's like, it's in the right location for wind. Yep. Um. So we're, you know, we're looking at west, prevailing northwest winds. winds prevailing. So we went southeast corner. Yep. Um, east sides. We're on the east side towards the southeast corner. Yep. And um, unfortunately, it's like I said, it's on that transition between the white pines and the oak forest. And guess what? We're in like a giant, like a, you know, even where the stand sits, it's probably still an 18 inch diameter white pine. Yep. And after cutting a bunch of limbs and putting that stand up, man, that stand is. I don't want to say covered, but like I climbed into it today and definitely came down a sticky dude. And it's all over the 
climbing sticks. It's all over the safety line. It was all over the bow rope. Yeah. Chair, like the seat. The seat had a little bit on it. So we're going to figure it out. My dad's going to have to deal with that. But well, hold on. Only option. Call to action for people listening is my mission. I really want to figure out some kind of creative solutions for dealing with pine trees that are leaking sap all over your stuff. So if you have an idea, something that will slow the saps dripping out all over your stuff or something you can coat a cut limb with or, or anything like that, if you have any ideas. Yeah, if that, you're a guy that hunts or a gal that hunts all uh, you know, pine forests, like, let us know how you deal with it. It's got to be something. I, you just can't like... It's one thing to have it on your like gloves and a little bit on your clothes, but it, once it sort of would become part of your bow, I could see issues, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's like in your cams and on your string and I don't know, on your knock and, it, and then it like it it's messes no with arrow flight as the, air, as the knock leaves the string. Who knows? It, it could be a problem. You yeah. Know? That, you don't want to be in that situation. You want to take a break and just close that window because I think you're getting a little wind yeah. noise. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees, it's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This, this, this is my way of bull staying. If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill. And enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, there was a lot of good things going for that spot. 
We wanted something, as you mentioned, good for the win perspective. We checked that off the list. We wanted something that would be within shooting range of as much of that plot area as possible, where we thought they'd come from. And, and we had a little bit of a debate around this, which was balancing the three factors for a tree that I think about at least. That being the wind, that being within range of where you think the shots will be, and then finally, will I be able to stay concealed in this tree? Does it have the cover factor? And so every time you choose where to sit, you got to con- you have to think about those three things and then figure out, in my given situation, how do you weight three? Because sometimes one or the other is more important. And so in this case, we got the wind covered good. What we had to figure out was how do we choose between cover and shots? There was a tree that was tucked back into the woods about mm, seven yards off the edge of the plot that would get you tucked in there very nicely and you'd be very unlikely to be spotted at all. But it was on the far southern part of the plot. Um, it was, like I said, like seven or so yards back in there and surrounded by lots of trees on all sides. So you basically have one shot right in front of you and you know, 60% of that small food plot would be out of range, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's tough from a perspective, you know, am I actually going to get a shot? There was another tree as you described, that was on kind of centrally located up and down, north and south on the east side. And from that, you could shoot basically anywhere in the plot. Mm-hmm. Downside, it was it was right on the edge of yeah. it. And maybe even like <laughs> little out in, from the edge, yeah. just a little bit. So that was the thing, was how do we want to, which one's more important, getting the shots or being more concealed? And... You know, ultimately, your dad was going to hunt the most, and he said, "Hey, I, I would prefer more shots." And I, I would probably say that you've got a better ability to manipulate the other factor in your favor in that one. So by that, I mean, if I sat the cover one, the one deep in the woods, now I need to say, oh, "Is there some way I can improve my shot opportunities?" And there's a couple things you could do, but uh, not as much. While with what we chose, we said, okay, we're going to get all the shot opportunities we want. Now can we improve the concealment? Mm-hmm. And it's much easier to improve your concealment if you have a pretty good tree, which we had a pretty good tree option. Oh, I'd say the tree is great. One yeah. is wide, which yep. like just, you know, it just sucks up the human profile. Yep. And then uh, like a, tree. A, a fair amount of branches coming off of it at the right height. Yeah. And we obviously had to do, you know, a fair bit of pruning, but like, Right now, when someone's up in there and you're standing in the plot, you're not seeing much human. No. And I recommend three other things, too. Number one, I recommend we put the tree stand facing off the back of the tree mm-hmm. so that we're not wide open on the front of it facing the big opening. Instead, you're facing the opposite way. So the trunk is now cover. So anything approaching from the food plot is likely not going to see you if they're coming head on because you're facing the other way. Now, to get a shot, you just stand up and kind of lean over to your left, and then you can get a shot behind you. So that was number one. Number two, your dad was thinking, hey, let's grab the ladder stand and put it up here. And I was like, ah, on this edge like this, I'd rather we do everything we can to keep this low profile. So let's not use the big bulky ladder stand that will stick way out. Let's do the climbing sticks that attach right to the side of the tree and a hang-on. Again, a little more stealthy, a little more um, low profile. And then finally, which we weren't able to get done yet, but I hope we can do at some point, add some pine boughs in a few spots just to give you a little more cover, just to be on the safe side there. And if we do that, we do those three things, we've essentially nullified all the concerns about concealment while getting all the upsides of the other two things. 
So that was my thought process on you know, picking the right spot and making it the perfect spot for what we had to work with. Yeah. And the last thing that we did, planted a tree. Oh, yeah. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. So, yeah, you're right. We, we wanted to, um, to sweeten the pot. Like, I always try to find, like, when I'm looking about, when I'm thinking about where to hunt, I oftentimes first try to find, like, the right zone. Like, what's the right general spot? And then it's what's the right spot within the spot. So then you microanalyze and you think, okay, so first was right, this food plot is going to be a great spot. And then it was figuring out what's the spot within the spot, which was what we just described, find the right tree. And then the next thing is, is there anything I can do to sweeten the deal? And so there were a few things we did to this area to sweeten the deal. And one of them is this tree you described. Um, longtime listeners will know that I'm a big fan of planting these fake scrape trees. Or basically you put a tree, you cut down a tree and stick it in the middle of a food plot or a field edge where it will stand out really conspicuously and you'll create a mock scrape underneath it. And these bucks will flock to these trees just like a largemouth bass will flock to a sunk tree in the middle of a lake. Right? It's the structure. And almost all animals are attracted to structure in the middle of a monoculture. So whether it's a monoculture of water or a wide open field, uh, they, they want to go to that. And in this case, they really want to go to a scrape tree because this is a communication hub. If you can get them to start using these, which they almost immediately do, they start making it better and better. Because every deer that visits it leaves a calling card. They leave their name and the number, who I am, what I've been doing, basically. When do you think we'll start seeing deer hit it? Tonight. Really? Now, tonight, it's going to be like, what the hell is this thing? What's going on? And so they'll be sniffing around, concerned. You might see them get spooky. Um, we've got two cameras in the area, so you're going to get to see this. Um, one's on video mode, which will be really interesting. But, you know, assuming there's deer in the area, which I'm assuming there are, yeah. um, they will hit it tonight. And they'll be like, what in the hell is this thing? What's going on? There's a lot of human stink you think here. There's, we're going to go in there tomorrow, and there's going to be deer tracks in that, in that dirt. I'd be shocked if there wasn't. Really? The only reason why there wouldn't be is if it's just such a low deer density. Right. But if I did this, like in Michigan, where I know it's high deer density... Oh, absolutely. There'll be a bunch of them checking out. They're curious critters. They might not do it in daylight right away because yeah. there's, there's so much commotion. Like They're going to be uneasy about it. But at nighttime, that's when their curiosity comes out and they're thinking, man, what's going on here? What's happening? And what's eventually going to happen is they're going to start, you know, they'll get comfortable after a week or two or something. And then deer will start using that scrape. Now, right now, they're not going to actually start pawing it up. That won't happen until the fall. But bucks and does will start leaving chemical signals on that licking branch. So basically we took a tree, cut down, you know, a six foot section of it, buried two feet of it into the ground. Now there's a big pine pole in the middle of this field with several branches hanging out at about four feet tall. That will be the licking branches. And then there's going to be a scrape, like a scuffed out oval of dirt underneath it. And in the summer, these deer will sniff and lick and rub their eyeballs and their foreheads and their noses on those branches, leaving all that information. Once we get to August or September, we'll, I recommend, like you, your dad, kickstart that ground scrape. And then from there, they're just going to keep it going and going and going all year round. They might not scuff up the dirt all year round, but they will be smelling it all year round. And um, what that does, you know, what's going to do for your dad is that hopefully come... You know, I don't know if he's hunting in here late October, early November, whatever. If a buck comes to check out this food plot, if it's early season, maybe he's coming to feed. If it's November 1st, he's coming in to check if there's does because there will be does consistently visiting this. Um, 
he's going to come in there and he's going to check it out and he's going to see the community bar or whatever, the online dating app in the middle, as you were saying the other day. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's going to go hit it and he's going to go to that scrape and he's going to stop and he's going to be sniffing and he might kick it up. And all the while we position this scrape right where we wanted it. So that scrape is positioned even angled to get the buck to angle in the general way we want him to. So he'll walk in there. He's going to be 20 yards away from your dad and he's going to angle perfectly broadside while looking at this tree and this scrape. And your dad's going to be off to the side out of sight where this buck will never know it. And he'll be able to draw back real nice and get a shot. Like that's the script you write and you hope will happen. Does it always happen like that? No, not at all. But it, it, it gives you a good chance that something like similar to that could happen. Yeah, even if he like comes 10 yards downwind of that scrape, it all works. Should be in bow range. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's so, another thing that we mentioned to sort of like not make some shots that are too close and not yeah. put deer that are going to end up getting directly downwind of, you know, your ladder and where you've been is we sort of like right on the edge of the food plot behind the stand. Uh, we, there was already a brush pile from when the, when the plot was cleared and we just sort of extended that with the trees that we took out from when we were doing the edge feathering and made basically like a natural fence that's probably 40 yards long ish. Yeah. 30. Yeah. And the, the goal there is, is that if they're actually like coming towards the stand and they're going to end up being like right underneath you, that that sort of visual will make them go a little bit wider and instead of being like a three-yard steep angle shot that nobody wants to take, it'll push them out to 10, 15, where you've, you know, you got a shot opportunity. Yeah. And it also kind of protects your downwind side. Right. Because we, we place that wall on our downwind, you know, on the downwind side of us. So you're hoping to push them, you know, to the north or south of you a little bit. Mm-hmm. So if we have that due, you know, northwest wind basis, basically is what we're protected from now. You know, it's going to push these deer to, you know, they they certainly could go through. Like when you say fence, don't anyone think that we literally have got a barrier. It's just a couple of down tree limbs and stuff. Yeah, but they it's could enough easy, to easily jump over it. Oh, yeah. They could walk like around you, it, like jump over said, it. Like you said, just make it a little bit of a, like a nuisance. Yeah, make it inconvenient. And almost always a deer is going to take the path of least resistance. She or he does not want to go pushing through extra stuff if they don't have to. If there's a really easy open path 10 yards more that way that's the way they're going to angle and so now he's got the that sweet scrape tree in the middle that's going to get one thing going and then if they go past that and he hasn't shot anything he's got now another thing that's going to divert their traffic just a little bit out behind him to avoid getting winded to maybe give him a better shot angle if he ends up wanting to do that um i mean you're just stacking a bunch of little things like any one of these things might only help you two percent but as i always like to preach like you got to take a shotgun approach sometimes to deer hunting because there's so many things we can't control that every little 1% I can stack could add up to maybe 7% of a better chance. And the 7% better chance can make a huge difference when you're trying to get that one deer you're going to get crack at all year. So, so that's why like all these little sweeteners, all these little tweaks, you know, that's sometimes the difference between seeing something and putting something in the freezer. So we did that. You made you did a little bit of edge feathering, mm-hmm. which and you know some hinge, hinge cutting, some hinge cutting, some edge feathering. Basically, just 
making some cuts, kind of making the plot edge more regular, mm-hmm. more diverse. There's going to be sunlight getting into the edges now, so it's not going to be like a hard food plot to pine timber. It's going to be food plot to kind of brushy brambles, down trees, and then into the timber, whether it's the maple, oak stuff, or the pines in the south. Um, so all these little things are going to add up to this, you know, being the, I keep saying it, but this is going to be like the, the neatest little damn ice cream stand anywhere around and uh, positioned really well for someone to get a shot at something. You told me you feel like, again, unless there's just like such low deer density that like there aren't deer moving around through there every day, but that just about every sit, if you do the right thing with access, play the wind right, don't sit on a bad wind, that you could kill a deer, like a doe or a buck, every time you sit it. I'd be shocked if you couldn't. Assuming you don't, if assuming all those things you just said, yeah. and that you don't overpressure it. So if you hunt it every day, they're going to catch on to you, right? Yeah. But if if you were to go in here October first, and then you went in again like October seventeenth, and then you hunted it five days from November one through November five or whatever, like that kind of thing, you know, I'd be shocked if you're not shooting. If if there's not a doe family group hitting this every day. I'd be very, very surprised. And I'd right. be very Some, surprised. Something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, something's wrong if that's not happening. Because yeah. it's just, it's so ideal. Um, and if that's happening, if there's a doe family group visiting this every day, if not multiple, which there very well might be multiple, there's going to be bucks checking it every day during the rut. Will it be the one you want to shoot? I can't guarantee that. But there will be days where four bucks will come by. I'm, I'm, I think it's, it's going to be a good thing. And it's something that could help and produce whether... You know, you or your dad were out here hunting on opening day, September 15th, or if you're here during the rut. This kind of thing, you know, because does own the rut, a bedding to feeding type of thing like this helps. Right. Just as much as it helps in the early season. So. Let's talk about the access a little bit to it, right? Yeah. It's basically like off the main road, there's like a logging road that comes in, pretty much goes straight to it. There's an, when I say logging road, like a two track through the mm-hmm. woods, there's also another one that sort of does like a U shape to it, and it's it's a loop, you know, that basically has this food plot at the far end yeah. of it. Um, and really, we decided that. Well, I don't know. You talk through the access. Well, the the big thing is that you you just want to think about where are these deer when I'm moving through. In which one of my routes will allow me to make sure I'm not educating them to my presence. So for a evening sit, I'm thinking, okay, if I'm going to walk in there at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, where are those deer right now? Well, they're up on those bedding ridges and knobs. And so I want to make sure that I damn well don't go anywhere close to those as I try to walk in there. So right now, that northern two-track gets pretty tight to that point. Yeah. So if the leaves are down and it's a little bit still, and you try to walk that like most obvious trail in, which I'm sure this past hunter probably did. Right? That's probably what a lot of guys would do. They'd walk that two-track. If there's a buck or does bedding on that ridge or that knob, they know absolutely everything you're doing. I bet you when you're at the closest point from the closest buck bed on that knob, mm-hmm. as their crow flies, it's probably 75 yards. Yeah, yeah. So you just can't do that. So in the afternoons... My recommendation would take would be either to go to the far southern border of your property or at least the far southern two track 
and walk that and stay as far away from that bedding ridge and knob as you can, circling basically on the downwind side of that tree stand and will come up the back. So that's what I would do for an afternoon sit. I think about it the opposite way for the evening because now when it's, you know, 4.30 in the morning or 5 in the morning or whatever, and I want to head in to hunt that spot, where are the bucks now or any deer now? Well, they're at least a good portion of them are probably out in those big ag fields to the south. Mm-hmm. And how do you get to that southern two-track we mentioned and to that southern border? Well, you have to at one point walk along the edge of that cornfield or get very, very close to it. So I wouldn't want to do that. I'd want to do one of two things. Either drive to that edge and get dropped off or find some kind of stealthy way to park a vehicle there and hop out and walk the edge in a way that you know deer often are less disturbed by vehicle. Or as I got to thinking, shoot, maybe just take the north two-track in where you don't need to go anywhere near that cornfield. And yeah, you are walking a two-track that hypothetically some of these deer might cross when they come back to bed and they could cross your path and could possibly win that. But as I started thinking more about it on our walk back this evening, I started thinking, geez, that might be one deer, two deer versus, again, I don't know deer numbers here, but it could be 12 deer out in that cornfield that you would spook that will never come back your way that day if you blow them out way to the other direction. Right. So, so again, I'm thinking, where are they right now as I need to walk through and what route keeps me as far as possible from that. And I think that's a big thing, like on this property in general, thinking about whether it be that, staying as far away as possible, or, you know, in one of the scenarios we talked about, and I'm sure we'll talk about here soon, you know, you have certain terrain features that act as highways on this property. And if you walk on the highway the whole way with them, it's one thing for a deer to cross your trail, and he's on your scent trail for three seconds, and then he's on his own way and gone another thing to ask that buck to walk your trail for a quarter mile and not to be boogered um so you have to weigh those things and make decisions too um but yeah as far as the the papa yanni stand the papa yanni heidi hole sweet spot i think we did a lot of things that will make it awfully nice oh yeah i think he's stoked man i mean i hope so he, he, went, he went from zero to hero today seeing all that i mean we worked on it yesterday too but uh yeah i mean there was like there was literally nothing there and no reason to hunt there no really now there's like a great couple great reasons to hunt there along with a stand yeah that puts you right in the money yeah it's uh i'm I'm very excited like standing up there yesterday and looking around and then today as we transformed it more i just kept thinking oh i'd love to be sitting here that first day and to see those first deer kind of trickle out through the cover and get in here. I mean, that's, that is one of the coolest things when you work on a, some kind of habitat improvement project is the first time you see wildlife using it and enjoying it and doing the stuff you were kind of hoping that they would. Mm-hmm. That is a really cool feeling. Like, oh, wow, it, it actually worked. This actually did the cool thing I was hoping it would do. It's very uh, rewarding. I'm hoping to uh, kill a turkey in that food plot. It'll be a nice little spring. strut zone. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, really nice little strut zone. Yeah, and there's roost trees not too far away. Yeah, I like um, it. But yeah, access brings us to like where I like to hunt, which is more up on the ridges. Mm-hmm. And it's basically like bowls and ridges country. It's yep. kind of what I you know describe it describe it as. Again, a couple hundred feet, maybe three hundred feet elevation gain, and big bowls that have you know fingers that come out into them. 
um, some longer than, than others, but you know, long ridges that connect to other bowls and the way everybody has been walking this country. And it's the easiest way to walk this country is to get on a ridge, walk a finger up to a ridge, get on the ridge, and then just run the ridge until you get to the bowl or, you know, the flat or whatever you're going to be hunting and then jump off the ridge. Cause the ridges all have trails running, them, you know? Yep. Well, that was a big eye opener for me today. When you explained what you already explained earlier is like, dude, you're asking that buck a lot. If you've been walking on that ridge for 10, 20 minutes more, and you think now buck's going to jump on that ridge behind you and end up coming towards you down that. He's just not. Yeah. I mean, at least nine out of 10 times he's not. Yeah. You'll have the, there's always exceptions to the rule, but, but yeah, you know, there's deer running the side hills of those ridges. There's deer running some of the tops at times, different times of the day. I mean, they're the easiest route for you and they're the easiest route for those critters. So my idea was let's look at different ways you can do an end around those and pop up the drainage. So find a spot where these deer aren't as likely to be congregating and traveling. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's just like, um, you know, back home by me, an idea that I like to use is walk a Creek and then have a tree stand right in the edge of the Creek. So you don't need to walk across anything. The deer is going to travel on. You walk the Creek and then you just pop up the bank up into a tree. It's the same kind of thing here where you're at the bottom of a drainage. You, you go don't up. think that buck's going to do that. Take that same path. I know they take it because the buck that I almost got shot on would take that path, took that path to get to me. A Creek. No, not the Creek, but what, how you're telling me to get into the spot that we looked at today certainly could happen, but I'm just saying that if I'm if I'm playing the game of averages, right, and I'm trying to say like how often are these bucks going to cruise or travel through here? I think it's more likely that deer will be cruising up and down those long ridges on the side hill either way, and does probably sometimes on the tops. Like that's a major line of movement that I think is going to be relatively consistent, while random ups and downs and random places in the drainage. I think that's more random. And so I would rather bet on an act of randomness versus the high probability odds that they're going to take the typical upper third ridge somewhere along their ridge top and be somewhere along there. Um, So why not just pop up this little drainage and then just have to walk 30 yards Mm -hmm. across the high travel profile versus 500 yards along that stretch. Yeah. Um, well, and it's going to be interesting because I'm going to have to try to like introduce that idea for travel in this country to basically everybody that's been hunting here for the last 40 or 50 years. Mm-hmm. Because like I said, man, that is just how everybody gets to their stand. Yeah. Um, but yeah, another cool thing about, well, the way to introduce where we were today and check out was that uh, it's a spot that I wanted to hunt. I really actually wanted to hunt it ever since I was like a kid because we call it the Oak flat. And to me, the Oak flat or just whatever, for whatever reason, it just has like a, there's just some like twinkly little stars around Oak, Oak, Oak flat, you know? And it's just like, seems like a place where like, it's one of the first thing you learn about deer in the woods is that they eat acorns that fall out of Oaks and that they would come up out of a bowl and feed up on this flat. Mm-hmm. So there's other spots around here that have a names like, First Valley, the second ridge, you know, the old, uh, um, foundation, you know, cause it was like an old foundation from like a homesteader up one of the valleys. Right. 
none of those spots are like kill a big buck here. But when someone's like, oh, the Oak Flat, you're like, oh, I'd like to go see mm-hmm. the Oak Flat. So last year I was like, for straight up nostalgic reasons, because I've been thinking about it for 30 years, I wanted to hunt there. But then looking at it on the map, I was like, man, three ridges come together. There's like, I don't know, depending on how you want to break it up, three or more bowls that kind of dropping off on all sides. One of our neighbors is close by there. And he, a couple, three years ago, did a cut. A pretty, I'd almost call it a clear cut. I mean, there's parts of it that are wide open and a lot of leftover stuff, a lot of, you know, thick bedding cover now coming in um, and just seemed like a good spot. So I hunted it last year, had some good encounters. You were, as one of the spots that you want to check out, you showed me on Onyx. We're like, you're like, we should go there. I'm like, oh, that's the Oak Flat. I have a long history with it. Yep. And, um, yeah, tell me why you liked it so much. Well, what I try to do in a situation like this is try to try to simplify the game a little bit. Because when you're looking at the amount of space we had here, like you said, there's a lot to work with. There's a lot to overanalyze if you tried to. And so I wanted to, to look at the big picture and see, okay, what's how's, how are deer how do I expect deer to travel across this big terrain? Like what are the major, major features? And then what do I know about how deer generally travel? And can I, can I find a couple focal points? Is there anything that's going to really move deer in a predictable way more than anything else? And so I'm looking and as you have talked about these, these big ridge systems and this particular ridge system has like a main river and then if, if you envision this being like a river is the way I was kind of looking at it. It's like a big river, like the Colorado River. And then there's several big tributary rivers, like how the Green River comes into the Colorado River, something like that. And then there's all these little creeks that come off of it, little knobs and points and things mm-hmm. like that. And so I started looking, and there's if, if you take a passing glance at the map, it just seems kind of hodgepodge, all sorts of points and ridges and all this kind of stuff. But if you focus, you'll start to see, actually, there's two points in the property you can hunt where major rivers converge where there's two points where three major ridges all hub up and so you're pulling in from three different river systems almost and the oak flat was the best one of those where three different big ridge point systems that also had their own tributaries and different things coming into them all came together this is the only place that had that as prominently so right away i'm thinking okay during the rut i know there will be there will be bucks cruising these and this pulls in the most water from tributaries to creeks all into one place and oh by the way you have this hub of movement that also is up high where you can have essentially bulletproof wind by hunting an edge of that and blowing your wind over one of these big bowls so there's two great things going for you you've got the wind thing figured out you've got a concentration of buck movement during the rut that's more predictable than almost anything else so right there, that gave me like, oh, I need to check this out. And then when we got there, I found out what you just said, which is that your neighbor cut his north ridge. So one of the spokes of the wheel has got this mega cut, and now it's just brushy, nasty. I mean, there's got to be does bedding in there. So now I know not only is this a hub, a funnel of sorts, not only do I have a great wind situation going for me, but it's also adjacent to what's got to be a really good doe bedding area. And we didn't even mention the fact, and you alluded to it but there's a bunch of oaks on here so and there's food Mm -hmm. 
you you can't write up anything better for a October 31st to November 20th hunt. And so that was the kind of spot when we got there and I saw it and I saw that everything kind of matched up the way I was hoping it would, plus a little bonus. That's the kind of place that you could hunt day after day and just wait it out. Explain this to me because I feel like the one thing that doesn't just sort of like fall perfectly into a slot with like the, what we've been talking about is that the bucks want to be running that third of the way down, right? Often. Off the, off the ridge top. Often. Yeah, this spot, like, you're going to sit, be sitting on the ridge pretty much. Yeah, the ridge, one ridge kind of rises away from you, but like, you're hunting the top. So how, how are you um, justifying that when you're thinking the, ru- the, the, the buck should be, you know, 50 yards below you? I don't, I don't think in this case they will be 50 yards below you. And two reasons. It's tight enough that even on your, I mean, I'm trying to think of how to describe this verbally without um, it not making sense to people without seeing it. Um, right next to you, it's super steep. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're traveling super down low because of how steep it is. On your, Is that true overall? Like if you're in one of these bowls and you just see just like, something that you're like wow that would be like a good ski run or it's almost like like it could have a cliff or something down there a little ways you can kind of x that off as a travel route and think that deer are going to go around that you could like all these things should be like starting points like an assumption i would make that assumption to start i'd want to verify it i want to like i'd sit and watch and see like you know sometimes these deer can be like mountain goats and surprise you but more often than not they'll take a easier path Mm -hmm. so yeah that's going to act as like a pinch and push them farther up into the slightly easier stuff so i think that if any buck comes around that corner where we decide to set your stand they'll come through in range of you there i think that if any buck comes down from the ridge on the straight across from you you're probably going to see him cruising up and around there you also have i mean you have the oaks you have that bedding so they'll be cruising on the downwinds or i mean on the thirds but they'll be crisscrossing There'll be bucks that want to get from one side to the other. So there's going to be cross the top movement on this hub, I think. So if you imagine like if someone's thinking of this at home, um, what's a good way to describe this? I don't know, like your palm of your hand is this hub. And then you've got like a one of these ridges is your arm. And then one of these ridges is your thumb. And one of these ridges is all the rest of your fingers if they were squeezed together. And there'll be some bucks that will side hill any one of those features. But then there will also be bucks that want to get across to the other bedding, to the other stuff. So you're going to have crisscross, you're going to have side, and you're not going to be able to cover all of it. Yeah. But you're going to cover a whole lot more than you would anywhere else. You'll be in the game on a whole lot more. Um, and so that's that's why I would play it this way to start. Maybe you're going to hunt it and you're going to see everything crossed and then they dropped right down the hill and I never saw them. I saw them for two seconds and they crossed and then they were downhill. So they're side hilling more. Maybe you're going to hunt, you know, that south tree that we talked about. So if you had a northerly wind, you would hunt down there and you can see down that hill a little bit more. Maybe you'll hunt that and see that, yeah, they really do hug farther down there. And and I might be wrong, but I would like to start on closer to that hub and and observe and see what happens. That'd be the starting point at least. Well, and again, I have some personal experience, you know, I sat it for, I don't know, four or five sits last year and interestingly well see last year was a little bit different because we had kind of had like a south wind which is odd but all the deer that i saw up there came from kind of the north and then onto the flat 
and yeah. then kind of hooked and got you know started working across or up the wind again. Yeah. And and that's the nice thing about hunting mobile like we do, is that you can adjust. Right. See, like I always go into this with like a thought through assumption, but then I always have to confirm that assumption with a sighting, with observations, or sign on the ground that tells you something different. Um, and then you got to be able to jump on that once you see that you were wrong and tweak it 50 yards or 100 yards or 10 yards, whatever it is. Um, but it's it's a really, really good zone. And the spot that we picked, you know, I thought with a prevailing wind north, you know, in that case, it'd be more of like a westerly wind. And the other tree we picked would be like for north or northwests. You're going to be scot-free with a wind on almost any wind like that. You're really going to have a hard time getting winded out there. And you can, so you can sit this a couple days in a row and, you know, assuming all other things go okay. It's the kind of spot that if you put in the time, I would just be shocked if you don't have bucks cruising through there. Um, I, I, I would almost be willing to put, I'm a high roller, I'll put $10 on the table and say that if you sat that for three days in some point in the first 10 days of November, if you sat that all day for three days and you accessed it right and you hunted the wind right, I would bet you 10 whole American dollars that there's no way you would not see a mature buck come through there. I'll do it. All right, and I'll pay up 10, 10 bucks. Three whole days, though. Yeah, three whole days. My, I'm gonna have to fight my FOMO bad, man. I realized that from last last fall, man. Like it's especially yeah. especially when there's you know you're looking at an acre or two. Mm-hmm. There's 390 some other odd acres. Yeah. Gosh, it just gets in your head to be like, down the ridge has got to be better. Up the ridge, I should go check it out. See if there's more scrapes or more buck rubs down there. I really believe in it. it it's going to suck in. It, it's just, I, I don't know what the right analogy is, but that sucks in a lot of, you know, it's 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 like all the rivers right now in certain places are blown out because they're sucking in muddy water from all over the place. All the muddy water is going to get sucked into that hub. It's a place to be. I like it. I'm going to hunt it. I like it. I like it too. What now, else? Now I know how to get in there. Yeah. What else did you have questions about? Or we walked some other places. Like what is there anything else I didn't answer or I didn't we didn't get to explore yet or I don't know. Well, there's two two questions. Um let's cover this one first. Uh I've got cameras on pretty much the major saddles mm-hmm. of this property now. Part of that has to do with that there and we have other cameras too, just traditional jaw cameras, but I have my cell camera set up on the ridges in saddles because that's where they get reception and I can reliably get pictures. Yep. And, you know, last year we kind of were like, ah, we'll put one here because it's like a known travel corridor. And we'll put one here because there's a, you know, scrape that's been here for 20 years. And, you know, they kind of produced off and on. And, like, obviously once the deer heart started hitting scrapes, yeah, all the ones that were pointed at scrapes were getting getting bucks. Um, But uh, now we just kind of transitioned them all to saddles. And it's just like it's nearly constant maybe not every saddle has a deer come through every day but darn close right so my question is is like okay you know they're using it great but what other like what other ways are there to like what other data can i extrapolate from what i'm seeing there in the pictures like do i need to be like counting how many deer pass through a saddle 
at what time, what direction they're most commonly going. Because to me, it seems like impossible that you would keep thousands of pictures and then scroll through one camera and be like, oh yeah, most of them are going left to right, which means east to west or vice versa. Like, is it, is it worthwhile to take the time every, every couple of days to be like, okay, the spot we call the jungle has, um, you know, in the last week, you know, 15 does went left, five does went right. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that you don't need to pay attention to anything like that that's happening from now until September. Mm-hmm. You know, after the first week of September, a lot changes. Especially with bucks. Um, velvet peels, bucks shift home ranges. Maybe five out of ten bucks are going to live somewhere different in the fall than we're doing during the summer. You know, there's a whole lot more competition between bucks, so they have to disperse. And then also around the same time, once you get in September, October, food sources change, cover changes as leaves fall down, all that kind of stuff. So there's this huge shift in behavior as you go from November 7th to October 1st. So I wouldn't worry yourself one bit about any details of what they're doing right now i think it's it's nice confirmation to see like oh yeah a lot of deer hump over these saddles right now Mm -hmm. that would tell me okay that's something to pay attention to come october but i'm not going to give one rip of more of my time to it until then what would be interesting is is once you get into that time period and you start seeing bucks use them then that's when i might look at okay which direction are these bucks coming from the morning how are they? Because basically, what you want to figure out is where are they bedding and feeding? Like, what's their up and down movement or whatever? And you might start to see that when you're looking at times of day these bucks are moving. Or you're going to see, like, oh, this buck comes through here more often than any other. And he always comes from the right. So that tells me, well, he's so where, and that's happening, you know, in the evenings. So it looks like he's probably heading down to the food to the south. He's coming from the right. So what does that mean? Well, his bedding most likely somewhere over there to the right, and then you can start figuring those kinds of things out. That's if you're going to hunt on like a bedding to feeding type situation. Mm -hmm. For you, you're not. You're hunting, you know, one week in November. And in that case, the the saddle info does help you just like knowing like, hey, this is a path of least resistance a lot of deer travel. But once you move into that rut time frame, that's when I'm really zooming in on that data. So again, that's, you know, one of these places might really be lit up. You're going to see that, oh, wow, this, all of a sudden, this saddle or this hub, this convergence of trails is where all these bucks are moving now. Over the last two days, last three days, man, midday cruiser, midday cruiser, late morning cruiser, zoop, here's your rut travel corridor. Like, there's something going on. They want to be here. They're passing back and forth to check a doe bedding area. All of a sudden, you're going to understand like, what are these rut funnels? Pinch points, okay, saddles. So what you saying that makes me think that my saddle picks, or the fact that I've picked to set up in saddles with my trail cams, is a good thing. Yeah, I'm not saying it's, I'm definitely not it, saying it's it, not a good thing. Is there a, from what you've seen just walking around the last day, are there other places where you're like, man, like, you're going to gain some good information if you put a camera here? Like what else can I be looking for in this in this hill country for like where to place a camera other than known? Because again, there's like there's trails, but there's kind of trails everywhere, yep. and there's ridge top trails, you know. But the saddles seem to be like everybody likes to hit the saddle. Yeah. You know? 
so not knowing, right, having no other personal experience other than having walked it for a day and looked at maps, I would be looking for the same thing when I'm thinking about where I'd want to focus my time hunting. It's where do multiple lines of movement converge. So it'd be like the hub we just described, that whole thing. Like that'd be, mm-hmm. I want to have some cameras in that zone because I know, I know this is a place that's sucking in a lot of movement cross, crisscrossing all over the place. Yeah, I want something there. I want another thing, like for example, in the amphitheater which we haven't talked about yet, but that's an area where like five different points all drop down from different ridges and they all converge in one zone. Now it's a kind of a a bigger zone, but it's like the reverse turkey foot. If you took like a turkey foot, or or in this case, it's more than turkey foot. It's like a a bear paw or I don't know, take your fingers and flip them upside down and then they all curl in and drop into the same little bottom. You've got all these points and where does it drop out to? It comes from these big bedding ridges and it drops down into the one big ag field around so there's no doubt there's a lot of traffic sucking down that into the evenings and sucking back up in the mornings. So that'd be a place like, I know the zone, I don't know the spot within the spot. So that's somewhere I want to put a handful of cameras to help you determine where's the spot within this zone. That's absolutely something I would try to do. Um, there's another area that's like the Oak Flat that has this converging river hub type effect mm-hmm. you call the jungle. Mm-hmm. that's another spot I think would be worth trying to like, you've got and just t- so folks know at home, we call it the jungle because not quite where the, the three ridges converge, but very near there down one of the ridges. There's a spot where it just got overgrown with those giant. I don't even know what that vine is. Like, what is the actual plant name of those big, thick Brown vines that, that the are, big grapevines? Yeah. They just grapevines. Mm-hmm. Okay. If it's what I'm thinking you're talking about. Yeah. Like the, you know, inch and a half mm-hmm. diameter but just like you know couple downfalls couple snags and just a pile of vines and you're walking down a ridge on a trail that's just like you can you know whistling dixie and all of a sudden you come to the jungle and you've got to like divert pick your poison like go right and drop off the ridge through like a, a raspberry you know forest or go left and hop a bunch of logs and go through some grapevines it's just this. I just want to explain why we call it the jungle. And, I, and we haven't. I, I haven't seen it yet. But I love what you're describing to me because you're telling me that there's this like jungle bedding cover right next to one of these major hubs of multiple three plus ridges all coming together right next to what sounds like a dynamite bedding area. That screams to me. Pay attention. And so that'd be another zone where I would, and maybe those saddles adjacent to that might be the spot within that spot. You know. So that you might already be in some of those locations. Um, but from a outsider's point of view, I'm looking at those points and saying, here's a starting point, here's the zone, and then give me cameras around it to then hyper-focus in after we learn something from those. That would be the next thing I would think about. So covering those, not just with one saddle camera, mm-hmm. but give me one on the north point, the south point, the east, so you start to get a better idea. Because... Like we were saying the other day, you can put a camera up here, and if you start making a ton of assumptions off one camera that's covering 80, 80 acres or something, and say, well, he never passed over here, but he cast here. You know, you don't know much about what happens outside of a 30-yard zone, right? Mm-hmm. They could travel 10 yards behind your camera, and you would never know it. So if there's a spot that seems that good, I would, if you have the cameras to do it, which, you know, we're not always going to have that, but if you happen to have three cameras or four cameras that you can focus on the zone, I'd almost rather really get to know a zone and how they use it. If you have confidence in the zone, 
really figure that place out this year. And then maybe next year, then you really figure out how to use the next piece. Um, that's one way to approach a camera strategy that I think has long-term value if it's a spot you're going to keep hunting. Any other, any other things? I mean, we talked about my horrible flight. We talked about some of the scouting takeaways we've had. We talked about, you know, fine-tuning one little hidey hole. Yeah. Habitat improvement for your well, dad. I think that the, 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 a good way to, uh, to close her out is to talk about the, like, the long-term mm, yeah. projection and habitat goals. Yeah. Improvement goals. Goals or I wanna, ideas? I want to get, well, both. I want to get Aldo Leopold on this joint, you know? On the 40 that at least, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm kin to. Yeah. Uh, so what are you asking? Like some of us, what I would want to well, do. Well, I know that they're yeah. in a, um, they're in like a, I think it's called the uh, Wisconsin, um, the, what did I The say? Managed Forest managed Program or forage something. Law. Yeah. Which is basically like you enter into it and you, they, you know, the state basically helps you manage the forest and you get a tax break for it, right? I know that in the next five years, there's some certain amount of wood that has to be cut out of there. So, like, would you have ideas of, like, where, you know, that cutting could happen? How would you cut it? Are there places that you'd never cut? Um, and just, I don't know. Like, yeah, when I'm up here for my, like, is there a project that I can start on, you know, next spring? Or if I make it back this summer? I've got a couple days. Like, what's yeah? What's a project that might take five years, but that can make a big difference? So, I think there's a few things. Like, the first things that came to mind to me would be better defining the best bedding and the best little transition food. Mm-hmm. So, it would be making Taj Mahals on those points. So, hinge cutting and adding the cover on those knobs and points where they want to bed if there's some cover. And so that's an easy thing that is going to just make this a better hangout for bucks and does all year. And that's going to help you in ways during the rut too. So that first point we talked about absolutely should have some cutting on it, thicken that up. You could even make the other big one better too in certain places too. Mm -hmm. Thicken that up. You're going to add some dough bedding farther up the knobs, up the ridge. So that would be one thing I would do. Um, And then I do think more of what we started today. Like make another one of those. Maybe make a third one of those. Um, the little food plots, a little hidey hole food plot. Because then all of a sudden instead of having one, you could also create a line of them. And so you're creating lines of movement. This is a concept that my friend Jeff Sturgis is always talking about. Like trying to define in some kind of way. It's always unpredictable, but you can encourage a slightly more predictable line of movement. And sometimes you can create crisscrosses of defined movement. It's it's replicating what we already have up on those ridges, right? There's a certain sense of a defined movement. We know they're going to go a little bit like this, a little bit like this, a little bit like this. We found a place like that. Down on the 40, that doesn't have that. So let's do something to create some of those. So we can create that with a line of these plots that we know bucks will then want to check this one to this one to this one and then hit the big fields. Or let's define where the best bedding is. So we know they're probably bedding all over these ridges or knobs. Let's go ahead and put two Taj Mahals that all of a sudden we know by far those are the two best now. If there's a big buck out here, he's going to claim that most likely. Not every night, not every single day, 
but you all of a sudden have a 15% better chance he's going to be there than you did historically. And that can make a big difference on future hunts. So those would be two things that it would be relatively easy to do. Um, and that I think would make noticeable hunting impact. You know, the bigger stuff, like where should you do substantial cutting? I have to think about that a little bit more because that's something that I think you want to be really strategic about. Um, because yeah, I, be, I mean, what I see from what we've seen historically is like those cuts immediately turn into doe bedding. It could be awesome. And there's probably lots of feed in there too, right? I mean, the Absolutely. browse has got to be great. So clear cuts are probably the best stuff you've got in a lot of ways in this big timber country for sure for food and bedding. What you want to make sure you do when you do anything, whether it's a plot or a bedding improvement, or in this case, like a big cut, is just think about how that impacts. Like, what's the trickle down effect? Like, everything, every piece is a domino, and it's going to hit another. Mm-hmm. So, I always want to make sure if you're making this big cut somewhere, is that going to impact how you get in and out to hunt these other places? Is this all of a sudden going to create a deer hotspot that there's no way you can get around? Right? I, I want to avoid the attract and repel conundrum, which is where you make some kind of improvement that attracts deer, but you don't have any way to get past it without them spooking. And, and a big cut like this could certainly do that. If you, if you position it right, I mean, as I'm, as we're saying this and I'm just thinking about it, like the far, like a lot of your access has to come from the East and it has to come from the South. Probably if you don't want to have to walk those big ridges. Yeah. And bump deer. Which we probably wouldn't want to do because that's where the beds are. Yeah. So my stay out of the bedroom, right? Yep. So like my first thought is improve improve that ridge in the bedding in the northwest corner, the north and northwest, which is the hardest stuff for you to get to. And you never, you know, it's the hardest to ever need to go through. Make that better bedding with some cuts. That probably is what makes the most sense. It's low risk from an access standpoint, high upside from an improved bedding. And that probably just sweetens the whole up and down movement from bedding down to your little honey hole food plots. And, and, and yeah, cause this, this just basically, it sweetens where they want to be and expands where they want to be while maintaining the general line of movement, which is from those ridge bed beds to your transition little food plot out to the big ag to the South. I think that's how I'd approach it. And I know you hate that there's those white pines that are kind of a dead zone that comprise the bottom third of the farm almost, but they give you a nice little buffer of free wind space. Like deer do travel through them, but they don't congregate there. They don't hang out there for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. It's a lot lower risk than if that was bedding. You know, if you did a cut right. through that and that all of a sudden became the spot where these deer are hanging out all the time, you're SOL in a lot of those westerly winds, Northwest and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, this kind of all stream of thought. I'm thinking about this as we go. Yeah. But, but that would be like a big project, and that'd be like a cool, impactful thing. Looking that north half, northwest half of the forty for something like that, I think would make a lot of sense. Um, yeah, because you would just be kind of you'd be like connecting new bedding to existing bedding. Yep, yep. You're you're just you're looking at the general areas where they want to be, and you're expanding or or polishing what nature already has there, and you're you're putting the frosting on top. Um, and if that big, that big old buck that was haunting your dreams last year, if he's still in the area, it's going to be a spot all of a sudden he's absolutely going to have to be checking out. Right. Um, take these places from being, you know, eh, maybe I'll swing by and grab a Starbucks coffee to all of a sudden, 
oh my god it's the best coffee in new york city i have to go there mm-hmm. that kind of thing and um that's kind of what you try to do when you're trying to manage and fix up and improve a small property it's anytime you can do something like that you can't change the world you don't have five thousand acres or 1500 acres like some people do that manage you know properties and deer but if you can make these little sweet spots really sweet you can have a disproportionate impact and then just don't overpressure it if you keep them feeling safe and you give them these incentives to spend a little more time there or to go out of their way to to add that to their route you can really do more with a small place than people realize that's my take I like it, man. I like that you're uh, you're you're feeling optimistic about our, and I'm not saying ours. It's my dad's, yeah, and his buddy's new forty. But uh, you you've got, I mean, lots of potential. Obviously, you've there's good deer here. There are deer here. I think with a little TLC, with a little of like adjusting some ways that we do things, make some tweaks, put the frosting here. It's it, there's no reason why you shouldn't have some great hunting here. So, Sweet. I'm I'm excited to see it. I'm I'm just really excited to see how things pan out this fall. You gonna send me updates the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, sixth day, seventh day, every day, please? I, I will for sure, cause I'll be <laughs> hunting uh, up top on the oak flat where I'll have service, which is a which is a real pro and con. <laughs> That's true. It's nice to check the weather, and it's nice to send market text, but mm-hmm. uh, boy, you can spend too much time looking at the phone and not hunting. But uh, even though I've yet to roost a turkey in the evening on this trip, and I've been after it for seven or eight days here, uh, it's getting to be that time. I think. Yeah, we, we have, better do it. We have a couple hours left to try to kill one more gobbler this uh, the spring of twenty twenty one. Shall we get after? Do you get the turkey blues at all when turkey season ends? I don't think I'm into it as much as you are. I don't. <laughs> I like. I really enjoy it. But it's not something I get the turkey blues about. I'm right into yeah whitetails. Right. Once once like the beans and corn start popping up, I get the which the, we've seen. Yeah. And when I saw that, I was like, ooh, <laughs> <laughs> that's when I get the real like whitetail heebie-jeebies or maybe not heebie-jeebies, but something is pumping. And uh, yeah, it was really... funny how that happened when you showed up here. Like I was kind of like thinking, like I was hunting turkeys, but I was kind of thinking of like the work we were gonna do when you got here. But I wasn't really like in the zone or like getting excited about it. But then as soon as like, what were we doing? When I looked back at you and I was like, man, that's all it takes is to walk through the woods. Oh, we were going to look, look at the buck beds. We were going to go oh, yeah. look at those points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden we just like switched into whitetail mode and it was just like, I was on a different trip. I was like, yeah, you know what? If we hear a gobble, we'll just let it go and get back to him later. Like we're going to, we're starting to like, we're starting to already tune in for this yeah. like November, you know? It's going to be here before I know it. Oh, man, especially these days. Holy mackerel. I'll tell you what. The one thing I just really badly want is I want to lose that $10 bill. So win that 10 bucks. Oh, buddy. And then we can wrap this thing up with a nice bow on November 7th or whatever day it ends up being. All right? Yeah, I know. I just have to pick a date range. It's coming. Mm-hmm. Hey, while I got you. Yeah. Is there anything the folks listening need to know about what Yanni, the Latvian Eagles, got coming out these days. Oh, yeah. When's this going to air? In like a week or two. Oh, perfect. Well, if it's uh, rough, so that'll roughly be like first week of June, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's it's either last week of May or first week in June. There still should be some uh, 
yet to roll out Meat Eater Haunts episodes. Um, the last one's going to be my dad and I haunting here last year. It's perfect. Perfect. You have if you listen to this whole thing, you have to actually go see the thing in person. Yeah, the video. You'll hear some of the things again that I talked about in the last couple hours, but you'll also um, learn some new stuff about my uh, my history here and uh, meet some of the guys that uh, that got me into hunting and, and taught me you know stuff about hunting in my early early days. Um, and uh, it, it's a it's a cool episode. Um, I, I think you'll dig it. And then there's. Uh, there's going to be like a Montana pronghorn episode. There's a Montana elk episode. And then the ones that have already aired, which you can go and check out right now if you haven't yet. But there's a uh, great Colorado archery elk hunt with Jason Phelps. And um, I guess since it, well, no, I won't ruin it in case you just like, again, we're living <laughs> under a rock and you haven't gone to go see it. Go check it out. There's some good calling action. You can watch Jason just like work his magic, which, uh, like let me tell you, it is there. Like, I, I I like I consider myself a decent caller. I can get it done, but and I'm confident in it. But he has like the next level confidence where he's almost like like he, he can tell you he, he's like Mark, I'm gonna do this now, and the bull is gonna do this, and you're like really, and he does it, and then the bull does it. You're like oh, that's yeah. cool to see. He's done it a lot more than I have, right? Well. Um, so yeah, that that's uh, great. You can always uh, that's on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Um, obviously, tune into the Meat Eater podcast with Stephen Ranella. I try to make it to as many of those as I can, um, and then you can always follow along on my Instagram handle, which is which is Giannis underscore Putellis, and um, nothing too exciting there. Just Johnny's general life. <laughs> Your dog. Which is a lot of hunting, a lot of fishing, my dog, some cooking. Uh well, my kids are up to a little bit. So yeah. That kinda that about wraps wraps it up. That wraps it up. It's good stuff. And and thank you. Thank you for welcoming me to this special place. Like it's really oh, man. it's really cool to get to be a part of that and, and to see it and experience it. And and I know that's no small thing. So thank you. Yeah. Well, I believe that my dad said as he was leaving today that Maybe we'll do a hunt together sometime, Mark. He did say that. He might have been thinking like Alaskan caribou, and you're like, well, you know, this will work too. (laughs) I know a good whitetail place about 70 yards from here. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that would be a cool thing someday too. All right, and that's it for us today. Appreciate you tuning in. Thanks for being a part of this community and listening to this story. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules 
from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.